do 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 the knowledge nest. Hello, <laughs> and welcome to our very first episode of the knowledge nest. That's Jordan. Hi. It's me. <laughs> and I'm Jen. <laughs> and today we'll be telling you um some stories. Should we start first with uh, what the podcast is going to be about? You know, we probably should. That'd be a good idea. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so we are going to be a podcast about history, mystery, cryptids, and anything and everything that keeps us up at night or occupies our headspace when we're working. We can't stop thinking about it. And it's going to be like a mixture of like true crime and yeah, just history stuff. Mine's probably going to be about a lot of weird stuff, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've got some stuff already for you guys, um, if we have any listeners, I guess. Um, but we both have something, and I guess, how are we going to figure out who goes first? Are we going to do rock, paper, scissors? Rock, paper, scissors. A battle to the death. Duel. Okay. We can't do it like last time you did rock, paper, scissors, though, because <laughs> you literally just chose the same one. Rochambeau. Are we ready? <laughs> Are we going on shoot? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot? Okay. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. <sighs> okay. All right. You go first. I go first. Okay. So, my story this week is about the Kellogg family and eventually the conception of cornflakes. So John Preston Kellogg was born on the 14th of February, 1807, in Hadley, Massachusetts. He married a woman named Mary Ann Call on May 1st, 1831, in Hartford, Connecticut, and they went on to have four children. Although Wiki says six, um, but on this website that I found called Find a Grave, they only have four children listed. Hmm. So, I don't know, man. <laughs> Maybe they, they kept... Two up in the the attic or yeah, something. Yeah, they were, like, chain. hiding them? I have no idea. Anyway, their <laughs> names were Merritt Gardner, Smith Moses, Albert, and Julia Elvira, which is quite the name. I don't know. Smith Moses is... Smith Moses is, like, shouldn't it be Moses Smith? Did they do it backwards? Smith Moses is just, like, a very bland name. It is a very bland name. Anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, they did make cornflakes, so... <laughs> Wrong John, but we'll get there. <laughs> Marianne then died of tuberculosis at the age of 29 on the 27th of September, 1841, just 10 years after her and John's marriage. So it did not last long. And John moved on real quick because on the 29th of March, 1852, he married a woman named Anne Jeanette Stanley. They moved to a farm in Tyrone Township, Missi Michigan. Michigan? 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 In 1834, where they went on to have eight more children. Although oh. Wiki says 11, but again, I can't find their graves, so I don't know if they existed. They just got lots of kids <laughs> up in that attic. So, like, they must have a real big attic. It's a real big attic. So... Uh, their names were Marianne, Laura E., Emma mm -hmm. L., John Harvey, Ella Preston, Will Keith, Clarabelle, and Hester Ann. Which means that he had a total of 12 children, or potentially 17 children. That's a lot of freaking kids. It's a lot of children. That's a lot of work. Anyway, we're gonna call this John, from now on, John Sr., so, John Sr. and his family were very religious, and although they were briefly a part of the Congregationalist Church, he and his family were Baptists during their time in Tyrone Township, until 
one fateful day. <laughs> so the story goes that one morning in 1852, a neighbor of the Kellogg's, Mr. M.E. Cornell, was riding past a field John was working in. Which, like, how do you, how do you spot a man just chilling in a field? <laughs> like, I'm gonna tell you in a second that he was riding past in a buggy. What was he doing? Like, you, if you're driving a horse, I feel like you should really be looking at the road. Right. But whatever. Just, you know. So Cornell stopped his buggy and hopped the fence onto John Sr.'s land. Then Cornell convinced Kellogg and his family to attend some meetings held by a man named Joseph Bates that were being held in Jackson, Michigan. Why would you be like, oh, there's that guy just hanging out in the cornfield? Right, like, tell him about this meeting. Right, like, my neighbor's just moved in. I'm gonna hop his fence. Halt, you horses! I'm just gonna hop the fence and go just be like, you know what you should do? You should come with us to a meeting. What's up, dude? Right? So, for reference, the two towns were an hour and six minutes apart by car today. They're an hour and six minutes apart. Or 69.5 miles. So it took them like like a week to get there? So this was during a time when buggy travel or horseback was the most common, and if the Kellogg family was traveling with everybody, all of their children... All 17 of them? (laughs) The trip would have taken them an average... They would have gone been able to ride a horse and buggy an average of 10 to 20 miles a day. Uh So it would have taken them ages. Basically, Cornell must have been the most convincing man in the universe. Right? Like, geez. (laughs) I was like, huh, we'll take you up on that. So Cornell was a part of the Millerite movement, which included the belief in an imminent second coming. Jesus is coming back, guys. Jesus, he's coming, he's coming. On his way. Yes. So, <laughs> it was basically the belief that you better get your ass to church now because Jesus <laughs> was coming. So, although Cornell was trying to get the Kelloggs to join a little bit late because at that point the Millerite movement had experienced the great disappointment, like when I was born, um, <laughs> which was, in the simplest terms, a bunch of people leaving the movement because William Miller, the person who founded the movement, was not correct that Jesus was going to come back in 1844. (laughs) Surprise, surprise! Surprise! So after the disappointment, the movement split up, but it eventually became the Adventist movement, which is what the Kelloggs joined in the 1850s. Okay. So Cornell convinced the Kelloggs to attend the meetings and successfully converted them from Baptists to Seventh-day Adventists. Adventists, there we go. The year after their conversion, the Kellogg's sold the farm in Tyrone Township and moved to Jackson to be closer to the church and its members. Now, my personal theory is that they never made it home after that initial meeting, and eventually they were just like, probably sell it. Like, just like, fuck it, we're not, right? like, we, we're not, we're not taking that trip back. <laughs> exactly, like, you, you take like three and a half days to get to this meeting, and you go back, and by the time you're back, your wife is like, we're, if we're joining this church, we gotta just move, because I'm not doing that again. We should have stopped at the store on, on our way home, because we ain't got nothing here. <laughs> You're right, we out of milk. <laughs> Sell the house. <laughs> I ain't going back to town to buy no more milk. Right? So, then the Kellogg's moved to Battle Creek, where John Sr. opened a small store and a broom factory. Ooh. Ooh. So, let's take a little break from the Kellogg family to talk about the Seventh-day Adventists and their beliefs. Good boy. Okay. So, 
During the time the Kelloggs were heavily involved in the church, there was 27 fundamental beliefs. There are 28 today, but the last one was added in 2005. Although the last one is number 11 on the list, so I don't know why, but I just admitted number 11 in this like list. So the beliefs are grouped into doctrines. There are the doctrines of God, humanity, salvation, the church, Christian life, and restoration. So here's a quick rundown of all 27 of the beliefs the Kellogg's and other church members followed. So there's the Holy Scripture. This is a direct quote. The Holy Scriptures are the infallible revelation of God's will. Adventists believe that the biblical authors were inspired by God and then expressed the thoughts God gave them in their own words, which I feel like is different than most other beliefs. Like most people believe or most like organizations believe that like the Bible is direct words from God, whereas Seventh-day Adventists believe like God gave, they like, into the brains of yeah, yeah, you know everybody else is like oh yeah that burning bush is telling me about god and then Mm -hmm. they're just like you know some i got some psychic mind powers man right right so they also believed in the holy trinity which is the eternal father the lord jesus and the christ and father son holy spirit Mm -hmm. um they uh, they believe in creation. Adventist, Adventists believe that the opening chapters of Genesis, i.e. in the beginning, <laughs> are to be interpreted as literal history. So they believe that inorganic material was created before creation week, and then that material was altered during creation week to be everything that existed. They also believe that radiometric dating is an interpretive science and that any Christian scientist should consider the biblical account in determining the time of creation for things. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> they also believe in this thing called the Great Controversy, which is a cosmic battle between Jesus Christ and Satan that plays out on Earth. Basically, every person is a part of the great battle against Satan every day of their lives. I mean, I kind of think that Satan is a good guy. I mean, he gets all the bad guys. He, he punishes them. Like, how is that bad? No. I don't know, Jordan. Just keep fighting Satan, man. Just. I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think Satan has already won, you know? Yeah. Being super gay and everything. Yeah, that's true. You're very Satan gay. Has, Satan has taken over my life. Definitely. Oh no. <laughs> Worship Satan. <laughs> so they believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. They believe in the experience of salvation. They obviously believe in church. They believe in the remnant and its mission. I have no idea what that means. I didn't bother to look it up. I probably could have. Uh, they believe in the unity and the body of Christ, baptism, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts and ministries, the gift of prophecy, the law of God. They follow the Sabbath. They believe in stewardship, Christian behavior, marriage and the family, Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, the second coming of Christ, uh, death and resurrection, the millennium, and the end of sin, as well as the new earth. Seventh-day Adventists believe quite heavily in a healthy diet and lifestyle also. So I think that's part of their, like, uh, marriage and the family and Christian behavior. They just really believe in a in a healthful lifestyle. Okay. Yeah, I guess, you know, if you only got, like, 
ten years until Jesus comes back, you should probably spend it being healthy, I guess. So. Yeah. You gotta be ready for that rapture, man. Exactly. Yeah. Are they walking to heaven? Or... It'll be a very long hike. <laughs> be a very long hike, yeah. So, because of this, in 1866, the Seventh-day Adventist church leaders, Ellen and James White, opened a Health Reform Institute and based the institute around the eight laws of health that Ellen had established in the 1860s. These laws are, and they are all directly quoted, uh, eat nutritiously, exercise regularly and often to improve your body, mind, and spirit, drink plenty of water, spend time in sunlight, practice temperance, use good things moderately and avoid bad things, breathe in pure air and do it properly. Rest well, remembering that the best rest follows labor. And trust in divine power as you make choices and seek inner peace. Love it. Yeah. So, uh, they usually followed a plant-based diet, and they would also often have, like, exercise regimes that, like, churches did together as, like, a fun time, I guess. So let's get back to the Kellogg's. What are they up to? (laughs) Moving. So let's ditch ten of those children, or... More, if you think they had 17. And only focus on two. Their names are John Harvey Kellogg and Will Keith Kellogg. So John Harvey Kellogg was born on the 26th of of February? 26th of February. (laughs) February. 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 John Harvey Kellogg was born on the 26th of February, uh, (laughs) 1852, in Tyrone, Michigan. So before they moved. His brother, Will Keith Kellogg, was born on the 7th of April, 1860, in Battle Creek, Michigan, after they moved. So the two boys both attended Battle Creek Public School, but only briefly from ages 9 to 11, and also, like, obviously at very different times, because they were different, born in different years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they both eventually left school at the age of 11 to work in their father's broom factory, And this is where we'll ditch Will for a little bit, and we'll just talk about John. So, John began working for the Whites at the age of 12, and he started as their errand boy. He eventually started writing and editing articles for uh, magazines and, like, health papers that the Whites would publish for the members of their church, because obviously they're the leaders, and they just want to get information out to their... They want to tell their their followers how to live their life best. Mm-hmm. Um, at the age of 16, he taught a district school in Hastings, Michigan. Now, this boy left public school when he was 11 and didn't have any formal education until he started teaching another school at 16. I didn't even... Uh, this is before the event. Of child labor laws, isn't it? I yeah. guess. So. Yeah. He, he could just do whatever he wanted. I guess you just, like, how do you even get that? Do you just walk into a school and be like, I'm going to be a teacher now, and everyone else is just like, okay. Or just like, hey, look at this big building. Let's make it a school. Right? I'll, be, I'll be the teacher. It's all good. Right? Like, what? how do you, how do you even, anyway. So, Ellen White said that her husband was closer to John than any of his own children, which is so creepy. Like, they they started hanging out with this boy when he was 12. Alright. Anyway, at age 20, he enrolled in a teacher's training course after having already taught a school? 
After already being a teacher? After already being a teacher for four years, he decided, you know, now is the time that I should enroll in a teacher's training course. I think this is a good time to get my teaching degree. Exactly, exactly, you know? Uh, then the Whites and his family convinced him to join a six-month medical course instead. Also, the reason he dropped out of school is because his parents didn't want him to go to school, so I don't understand why they're now supporting him and getting a medical training degree, but... Maybe they wanted, wanted him to get some money or something. Like, you yes. know what? We're kind of poor. We're tired of working. Yeah, right. Maybe we're broken. <laughs> but also, you you have so many other... You have 16 other children. Yeah, right. <laughs> you have so many kids. You have so many kids. Okay, so after he graduated the course, he then attended medical school at the University Medical School in Michigan and then did, like, a residency type thing at the Medical College at Bellevue Hospital. So he graduated in 1875, and in October of 1876, the Whites offered him the job of director at their Western Health Reform Institute. So, in 1877, he officially renamed the institute the Battle Creek Medical Surgical Sanitarium. That's a long-ass name. Right? Like, how do you put that on a plaque? You just gotta abbreviate it to... Battle... Let's see... B C N S S B C M S S B C M S B C M S So he coined the word sanitarium. Uh, no one had ever used it before him, and it was meant to suggest that hospital care, sanitation, and personal health were all of importance. So this is where Will comes back into play. Okay. So as a young man and without any formal education, he helped his brother run the sanitarium. He took care of all non-medical matter matters. He took care of all non-medical matters. Think like uh, like serving staff, janitor, like groundskeeper, mm-hmm. things like that. Things where like, you know, he wasn't directly involved in like patient care, but he was right. just there existing he just is like oh he needs some odd jobs done i'll, I'll do them yeah right like i can I can fix the sink yeah. like i can serve people food mm-hmm. um now he's gonna fuck off again for a bit <laughs> and we're gonna talk about john again so these patients at the sanitarium ate a diet of whole grains fruits nuts legumes and other generally healthy food and it's a, it's a vegetarian diet or a mostly vegetarian diet um just sort of like plain bland foods. Uh, John had this obsession with nuts. He believed that they were, like, the cure-all, like, be-all, end-all of, like, things. I don't know why. (laughs) He's like, you know what's amazing? Nuts. Nuts. So John, uh, was an eccentric man and had some very weird ideas and methods. He believed that nearly all illnesses originated in the stomach and bowels and would often prescribe daily yogurt enemas. What? Yep. First, the patients would have a water enema, then a half a pint of yogurt was eaten, while the other half was used in the enema. That's just, like, I wonder how many patients of his got an infection from having yogurt pumped up their butt. Yeah, that's, it's, it probably was not great. Like... So sticky. Yeah, he... Well, and, like, think about, like, 1860s yogurt, though. Like... It cannot have been good for anyone. Oh, no. Okay. 
So they also um, would engage, patients would engage in breathing exercises and mealtime marches to promote proper digestion of food. Uh, sun baths were also used because of his belief in phototherapy and also just because of Adventist belief in the el the eight forms of like health spending lots of time outside that you need to spend time in the sun. Like what are what are sun baths? You just take a bath in the sun. Yeah, is you, that what it is? Well, yeah, you just hang, like it's kind of like tanning, I guess. You just sort of hang out under the sun for a while. Oh, okay. You let you let the kit the sun just kiss you. Kiss your face. Just kiss your little face. Just <laughs> give, a, give a little kiss. The sun gently, like. <laughs> uh, so John also advocated for circumcision uh, for every for all ages, um, which he believed could cure uh, local uncleanliness. Which I really I have no idea what that means. I guess does he mean like. Just like genital uncleanliness in general, like can't wa like you should wash. Obviously, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Maybe they were just. I mean, circum like uncircumcised like penises. I mean, obviously they have that extra little flap of skin. But like, if you don't clean underneath it, like you get junk. Yeah, but like also, just wash your body. This is also the eighteen hundreds. That's true. So, I mean, but, I'm sure, and I'm sure there wasn't a whole lot of education about cleaning under your uncircumcised penis. I mean, we just skin did, flap, we did so. just talk about yogurt enemas. <laughs> so, I can imagine. <laughs> I'm sure they were just like, dude, your dick is gross. I'm just going to cut off a piece of it. Rid of this, this troublesome skin flap, man. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, he also advocated for circumcision because he believed that it would stop small boys from masturbation. I don't think he knows how small boys work. I don't think so either. <laughs> I don't think he... I don't think he gets it. But anyway, he believed that if the illness... If he couldn't figure out how the illness originated from the stomach or the bowels, John thought it was caused by intercourse. What? He thought sex and intercourse caused illness. I mean, sometimes. Mm-hmm. So this this intercourse is bad mentality extended into his own marriage. The couple remained celibate for over 40 years, Ugh. slept in separate bedrooms, and never had any biological children, although they did foster 42 children, and they adopted at least seven of those 42. Jeez, 42 children? Yeah. That's not all at once, is it? No, not all at once. <laughs> say, their house would have had to have been massive. <laughs> it's a big house full of so many kids, <laughs> you and your wife sleeping in separate bedrooms. Ooh. God, that must have been the worst. Can you imagine being that guy's wife? Yeah. Her name is Ella. Poor Ella. R.I.P. Ella. R.I.P. Ella. I'm sorry I didn't get to have any sex with you <laughs> alive. Right? Ever. I'm sorry I didn't have to have, get to have any sex. Ever. And also your husband thought masturbation was wrong, so you couldn't even do that. Well, I mean, she had her own room. I'm sure she would would have been like... Okay, but wait. But wait until I tell <laughs> okay. you. But, okay. like, wait. So, to stop patients from masturbating or thinking about intercourse, John would seat patients on a vibrating chair, which uh, is basically the least bad thing out of this list, and also I'm pretty sure that would have gotten some people off. It's, so, it, yeah, I mean, it's kind of counterproductive, John. Okay, but it's gonna get worse, like, immediately. Uh. Uh, he would also apply carbolic acid to the clitoris of patients to prevent harm harmful female masturbation. What is that? Uh, like, 
acid to your genitals <laughs> to burn your clitoris so that it can't feel anything. Sorry, my clit just crawled up inside me. <laughs> so did Ella's. Out of fear. <laughs> clit, gone. Ran away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so now, now we can safely assume that poor Elle or Ella did, never, never masturbated, never had sex. Did he, her. I would say, did he do this to her? He might have. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Anyway, uh, he would also immerse, immerse patients in freezing radium-laced water and would administer electric shocks to various parts of their body, all in an attempt to stop masturbation. What? Dude. What's, what's, what's so wrong about masturbation? Right, like, come on, man. I bet if he, I bet if he masturbated once, he would never have, he would never. Right. <laughs> Dude. So, John also supported a, a diet of bland, plain foods to reduce sexual thoughts and urges, and he also supported race betterment conferences, which are just as bad as they sound. These conferences were in support of eugenics programs and advocated for racial segregation for preservation of the human race. That makes me sad. Yeah, so he... That's it's awful. That's awful. So, before I talk about how cornflakes were invented or, like, produced, we're going to talk about this belief about cornflakes, okay? So there's a belief that cornflakes were created as an anti-masturbation food, but this is largely false. So cornflakes were just part of a broader advocacy for a plain, bland diet. Uh, it was never advertised as an anti-masturbatory morning meal, which um, we're going to talk about in a second. An, an article, a couple articles have put anti-masturbatory morning meal in quotation marks as if John had said that at some point, but he never did. Um, and nothing about the anaphrodisiac, which I didn't know was the opposite of aphrodisiac, mm -hmm. um, but nothing about the anaphrodisiac purpose was mentioned in the patent application either, and this was during a time that if something was meant to be anti-masturbatory, it would have gone in the patent application. People mm -hmm. were largely anti-masturbation. It was very religious. Like, it would have it gone in the patent if that was its purpose. Instead, its purpose was just a healthy, easy-to-consume, easy-to-digest food for their elderly patients. What a horrible time to be alive, man. Yeah, it was like... Not, we would not have made it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... You gotta eat bland food so that way... You don't you, masturbate. You don't get all turned on by your food. It's just like, right? damn, that is some sexy food. Look at that chicken thigh. Mm. <laughs> Reminds me of actual thighs. Right. I'm gonna go masturbate. I'll be back. Right? Like, like what? <laughs> what? Okay, so the phrase and the belief that this was the case originated with two articles, one in 2012 by Mental Floss that reported that Kellogg developed different flaked breakfast cereal for, in, in quotation marks, ready-to-eat anti-masturbatory morning meals. So this was where the phrase came from. Um, uh, th they put this in quotes despite the fact that neither... Uh, John nor his brother ever said it. Um, then in 2018, another article which was produced, which stated that the Kellogg's 
that the calyx cornflakes were invented in 1878, which we're going to learn in a, in a second is not at all right. Like, that's just entirely wrong, uh, which was not the year that they were invented. And they, they quoted that, uh, they quoted John as saying, in the hope that plain food would stop people masturbating. Again, which is, it's, it's slightly closer to the truth this time. Like, he advocated for a plain mm -hmm. diet. But that, that's not something he ever directly said or was ever directly quoted of saying anywhere else. Um, so the belief has caught on again this month, August of 2019, uh, with memes telling people to ask Google why cornflakes were invented. Because if you ask Google why cornflakes are invented, she'll read you, uh, I think, the mental floss mm -hmm. article that said, like, they were invented as an anti-masturbatory aid, which is not correct. Let's get back to how cornflakes were invented. Uh, the two Kellogg brothers, in an attempt to devise a way for patients to consume more grain, and also for a way for patients to consume a food that would digest easier, a food that's easier to consume uh, for their older patients, um, <clears throat> they produced a method for processing cooked grain that would create these, like, long sheets of dough. Mm -hmm. uh, so they would, like, toast the grain. Mm -hmm. They're called wheat berries. Um, they would toast them. And then they would get, like, like nice little crunchy. And then they would roll all of these, like, wheat berries through these big, long rollers. And it would form this, like, sheet of dough. Interesting. And I think before it became cornflakes, they would just, like, bake it. And it would be similar to, like, rolls. Okay. So, uh, as the story goes, while the wheat was cooking one day, the brothers were called away uh, from this process. And upon their return, the, the grains had burnt. Uh, or at least was were much more cooked than normal. Um... So the sanitarium didn't make a whole lot of money, and they couldn't just be like, goodbye, like, just throw away a whole load right. of grain. Uh, so they were like, we'll run it through the rollers anyway and see what happens. Maybe it's fine, you know? So uh, as each wheat berry emerged, instead of forming a big, long sheet, they were flattened into these thin flakes. So these wheat flakes were introduced to the sanitarium in 1894, uh, and then cornflakes were produced using a similar method and introduced in 1898. So that one, that one article that said that they were made in 1878, real wrong. Like, real, like, many years off. <laughs> well, yeah, a little off. Yeah, like, neither the wheat, the wheat flakes were made in 1894, and the corn flakes were made in 1898. The two cereals became incredibly popular at the sanitarium, which, I mean, like, if the thing that's popular is corn flakes, you know your diet's gotta be real bland. They're just like, wow, this is so full of flavor. <laughs> right, wow. <laughs> So, uh, they became so popular that a former patient, uh, C.W. Post, <laughs> yep, helped uh, the Kellogg brothers manufacture and sell their breakfast cereal, which they marketed under the name Sanitarium Food Company, which they later changed to Sanitas. 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 I don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced. Okay. Um, so then the brothers had a falling out. Uh-oh. Yeah, so Will wanted to add some sugar to the flakes, frosted flakes, uh, to make them more palatable to the general public. Uh, always the buzzkill. Uh, John disagreed on the grounds that sugar was unhealthful. Uh, plus, John was the older brother, and he always saw himself as the smarter brother and treated uneducated Will as an employee and not a business partner. So he's pretty adverse to anything that Will wanted to do, mm -hmm. which is 
jerky. Uh, so then Will split from his brother and started his own company in 1906 called Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company. I love that this is just a time where you can just name your company so like you got what some it is. Long ass names. <laughs> right? Like where you can just name your company like the longest name. The BCTCFC. So in nineteen oh nine, the company changed its name again to Kellogg Toasted Cornflake Company. In nineteen fifteen, brand flakes were introduced. In nineteen sixteen, all brand was introduced. And in nineteen twenty eight they are crazy and added rice krispies. Oh boy. Okay. Very exciting. Very exciting. So, in 1920, John changed the name of his company to Kellogg Food Company. Both companies sold cornflakes in similar packaging while challenging customers to not buy imitators' products. <laughs> so, like, like left Twix, right Twix, like, debate where they, like, don't buy the right Twixes, don't buy the left Twixes. Except this was literally two separate companies being, like, don't buy Kellogg's uh, Toasted Cornflake Company is because Kellogg Food Company is the, the real one. Like... They were real petty. Real petty. <laughs> real petty. Real so extra so petty. So then Will Kellogg then took his brother to court and won exclusive rights to the family name so he could be the only one to have his company named Kellogg. Mm -hmm. um, but he lost the rights to call his product Toasted Cornflakes. So that's why they're called cornflakes today. So since the phrase Toasted Cornflake was included in, in Will's company name, he renamed his company in 1922 to Kellogg Company. So the two brothers never talked again. They literally fell out over yeah. cereal. They fell out over cereal. Yeah. Okay. So after the lawsuit, uh, John got out of the health resort, which is apparently what they're referring to the sanitarium as, a health resort. Um, I don't know how you can call it a health resort if you're burning people's clitorises with acid, but that is beside the point. Uh, he got out of the health resort and the cereal business and lived a quiet rest of his life. Uh, on John Kellogg's deathbed, he wrote his brother an apology uh, he said he was he had wronged his brother and he and he wanted his forgiveness. A direct quote from the letter is, "I earnestly desire to make amends for any wrong or injustice of any sort I have done for you." Um, and that was the beginning of a seven-page letter. This is a long letter. It's got a lot to unload. He gave the letter to his secretary to mail. However, she hated Will also, um, and so she read the letter and then. Uh, after realizing that John was attempting to reconcile, just stashed it in her, stashed it in her desk and never mailed it. What? What an absolute dick! Yeah, she's like, just, not your choice, man. She committed a crime by reading somebody else's mail, and then decided not to mail that mail <laughs> because she hated Will. Also, <laughs> uh, John died shortly after, so this bitch didn't send the letter, and then also just let her boss die without ever letting him and his brother reconcile. So what a dick. Yeah. So after making loads, lots of money, Will established the WK Kellogg Foundation with a $46 million grant at the height of the depression. And he instructed his staff to, and I quote, Use the money as you please, so long as it promotes the health, happiness, and well-being of children. 
He gave his farm to the Michigan State College of Agriculture and Applied Science, endowed a wildlife sanctuary at Wintergreen Lake, Michigan, and gave millions to other causes. Basically, I'm rooting for Will. He's the better brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Um, in his last decade of life, he was blinded by glaucoma, and uh, his guide dog, fun fact, Rinson, was the son of Rin Tin Tin. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, in his last few years of his life, Kellogg said his greatest joy was being driven to the cereal factory and sitting in the parking lot, hearing the machinery hum and smelling the toasted grain. Hmm. Uh, and that is the story of the Kellogg family and cornflakes. So, uh, just real quick, the information in this rundown came from nndb.com, findagrave.com, tctimes.com, wikipedia, of course, OregonLive.com and Snopes. Yeah. Well, that, was, that was interesting. I didn't know, like, I had listened to, or not listened to, but I had watched, like, an episode of Junk History that kind of covered mm-hmm. um, the Kellogg cornflake stuff, but it was a little different, obviously, because <laughs> <laughs> the person explaining it was, you know, drunk. But, yeah, yeah. Um, this is good. Yeah, of course. Are you ready for mine? Oh, I am so ready. Is okay. it going to get spoopy? Uh... Sure, yeah. Okay. All right. Spoopy. Uh, <laughs> spoopy. Real spoopy. <laughs> yeah, spoopy is the right word. Okay. So I um did this episode on the Wendigo. Um, and so, um, let me take a look. Majority of my information is from Wikipedia, and then I also forgot to write down the name of the other websites that I looked at, so I'm sorry about that. don't hate us we're so sorry (laughs) (laughs) so a wendigo i'll just start right in so in the north woods of minnesota the forests of the great lake region and the central regions of canada um they're said to live a malevolent being called a wendigo which roughly translates to the evil spirit that devours mankind oh um, That's quite a long, rough <laughs> translation. Dang. Yeah. And the Wendigo is kind of known amongst um, a couple of different Native American tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them being the Algonquins and uh, the Cree. Um, okay. I don't remember the other one. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's not just uh, the Northwoods of Minnesota and the other places that are listed. Okay. Like um, Stephen King in Pet Cemetery writes about how when Lewis Creed is going up to the Native American burial ground, um, he hears something in the woods. Okay. Um, and it's said to be a Wendigo. Okay, so it's just a very wide-reaching... Yeah. 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 It's so just it's, sort of like... Yeah. In cold places where there are lots of woods, a Wendigo lives. Kevin. Several, yeah, several Wendigo. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if they just... Okay. Uh, <laughs> they just... <laughs> yeah. Hello! Hello! We're just a bunch of Wendigos living in the woods. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's horrifying. Okay. Uh, this creature may appear as a monster with some characteristics of a human, mm-hmm. or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them become monstrous. Um, it is historically associated with cannibalism, murder, insatiable greed, and the cultural taboos against such behaviors. Oh, okay. So, mm-hmm. like, we thought that, like, uh, in the middle of winter, 
if you live in the woods in the middle of winter and you run out of food, you, like, have to eat your the people who have been dying of hypothermia exactly. or something. Yeah. Exactly, And then yeah. during the summer when everything thaws out and you have to explain yourself, you go, it was a wind ago. Yeah. Uh, although descriptions can vary somewhat, common to all these cultures is the view that the Wendigo is a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being, okay. which is strongly associated with winter, the north, coldness, famine, and starvation. Okay. Uh, Native American versions of the creature speak of a gigantic spirit, over 15 feet tall, um, that had once been a human, but had been transformed into a creature by the use of magic. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, Though all of the descriptions of the creature vary slightly from tribe to tribe. Um, The Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, terrible claws, and overly long tongues. Um, Sometimes they're described as having sallow, yellowish skin, and other times depicted to be covered with matted hair. Uh, The creature is said to have a number of skills and powers, including stealth, um, is a near-perfect hunter, knows and uses every inch of its territory, and can control the weather through the use of dark magic. Oh. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) They are also portrayed as simultaneously gluttonous and emaciated from starvation. Huh. Yeah. Um, During the latter half of the 1800s and 1920s, uh, the Wendigo was said to have been seen close to the town of Roseau, Minnesota. (laughs) Minnesota. (laughs) A little, little close to home. Yeah, just like you know, one of the one of the 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 people who live in the town just like accidentally bump into the window and go, "Oh, sorry, didn't see you there." Oh, excuse me, sir. Oh, excuse me. You're an awfully tall man. You're awfully tall. You looking very thin. You want some hot dish? Are you hungry? Me and the wife have made some hot dish. You should uh. <laughs> you should come join us. You're welcome on the farm. Mm-hmm. Just come on in. The door's always unlocked. <laughs> Um, each time the sightings of the creature were reported, a death that was close or was classed, excuse me, was classed as unexpected was also reported. Okay. So, Wendigo be eating people. A member of the Cree tribe of northwestern Ontario named Jack Fiddler told a Methodist minister about his ability to defeat Wendigos. Um, word spread of Fiddler's self-proclaimed abilities, and a sh- as a shaman. Fiddler said that he had killed 14 Wendigos. There's a lot of Wendigos. During his lifetime, yeah. And insisted his actions, snuffing out locals before they turned into Wendigos, uh, saved the lives of any. Oh, so he was a murderer? Yeah. So he, oh. He, yeah, he was like, you look like you're turning into a Wendigo. So like, witch hunting. He's like, you know, you look, you're looking a little hungry. I'm gonna kill you. I'm just gonna straight murder you. Yeah, just oh. preventing, I'm saving the lives of many by killing one. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not good. That's very not okay. A little bit of a, a little serial killer-ish. Yeah. That's just a man who got, like, an okay to serial kill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jack Fiddler and his brother Joseph um, were eventually arrested and imprisoned for killing a woman before she transformed. Air quotes. Okay. Well, at least they ended up in prison. Uh and they got out immediately. Oh, just, yeah. just, just hold on. <laughs> okay, never um, mind. Jack escaped and hanged himself, and Joseph died of consumption just days before he would have been released on appeal. Consumption? Consumption. Oh. Okay, yes. okay. He died of drinking. Um, and that's that's pretty much all I all I gathered. Okay. Um, there are lots of stories on on like Reddit and other other mm-hmm. websites, but 
they're very long-winded. But, um, yeah, there's also a, I didn't look this up, there's also a condition um, that is related to Wendigos, and it's called Wendigo psychosis. Oh. Um, and Wendigo psychosis is one of the more dramatic mental illnesses. Um, it's characterized by deep craving for human flesh as people. Yeah. It is also possibly entirely made up, apparently. Oh. Apparently it's a fake disease. It's a potential to be a fake disease. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's see. I mean... Your first... Uh, I'm reading an article now. Um, by io9.com. Uh, it says, if you're like me, your first contact with the Wendigo came from one of the scary stories to tell in the dark books. Uh, in which a pair of trappers are stranded in the wilderness on a storm. Uh, one trapper is driven wild, driven mad, excuse me, <laughs> by the wind calling his name and runs outside, seemingly dragged by the wind until he burns up in the collision. Oh. I remember that one. I do remember that one. Yeah. That's probably why I, like, I vaguely know this story. Definitely did not make the connection to a Wendigo for that one, though. No, I did not. Like, the wind driving him insane is not, that's more banshee to me than Wendigo. Yeah, I definitely would have thought it was just the wind. Yeah. Like, a haunted spooky wind. Spooky wind. <laughs> Cursed wind. Cursed wind! Uh, the original story of the Wendigo is told amongst the Algonquin. Okay. Which is generally associated with the deep of winter. With the deepest of winter. With the deepest of winter. You know, the time of famine. Usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, the things are rough. They've yeah. run out of moldy grain. They don't have anything left to eat. Yeah. They've got 17 children and they're all dying of winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One man, through hunger or personal failure, broke the taboo against eating human flesh. Okay. And an evil spirit possessed him and forced him to become insatiably hungry for more. Always eating and always starving. The idea of a moral slip leading into a spiral through which it destroys the sinner is a cross-cultural one. Mm -hmm. uh, but this particular idea of a wendigo has spawned a specific and violent delusion. Yeah. Um, it sounds very, like, Donner Party. Yeah. I mean, obviously the wendigo has legend mm -hmm. for years and ages and centuries. I think wendigo psychosis is kind of like you're, I mean, in such dire straits that you're forced to yeah. eat human flesh. Yeah. And then you probably have, like, a, a mental break. And yeah, so, or you're just like, and I, I had to do that. Yeah, like, and then you're like, well, guess I'm a wendigo now. Right. I must eat people. Yeah, because you're still, it's still winter and you still, like, don't have any hope of spring happening yet. Yeah, so you just, like, continue. Why do people live in the north? Like, why did we, why did anyone decide... <laughs> but it's just like, even when things are good, you're just like, I'm going to eat some people because I'm a wendigo now. Yeah. I'm going to hang out in the woods and just eat some hikers. Yeah. Wendigo psychosis is a sometimes uncontrollable craving to eat human flesh, even when other foods are nearby. Uh, reportedly, it was localized within northeastern American tribes and was dying out as European American anthropologists began cataloging. It left behind some vivid stories. One of the most well-known stories was that of the Plains Cree trapper in the late 1800s who, after the death of his eldest son, killed and ate the rest of his family while well within reach of outposts at which he might have gotten supplies. Oh, jeez. Well, that's... <laughs> Another famous Wendigo story is of Jack Fiddler, of course, uh -huh. who reportedly hunted and cured others of Wendigoism. Um, when he, he cured as in they just, he just murdered them. When he killed one supposed Wendigo, uh, he was tried and convicted of murder and executed. Um, he hanged himself. He wasn't executed. I don't know. I don't know. What's that? Yeah. Uh, the fact he was that tried and convicted, but they never got around to hanging him. He hung, he hung himself. Yeah. The fact that psychosis was localized both geographically and cultural 
and seemed to be vanishing as the culture vanished, caught a lot of anthropologists' eyes. Um, the fact that the moment anyone looked for a Wendigo psychosis, it vanished, seemed significant to quite a few skeptics as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, while plenty of people- Oh, I don't know, maybe just because we were murdering all of the Native Americans at that time, and just, you know. Right. If we just kill everyone. Mm-hmm. While plenty of people heard stories of such a psychi- psychosis, just blew a spip over. Yummy. But <laughs> but few seemed to meet a Wendigo sufferer in the flesh. Um, I don't feel like you would want to do that. And I was like, what's up? Hey, I'm a Wendigo. Oh. I'm gonna go the other direction. Yes. What? Yeah. I hear someone's calling my name. I have to go. I'm like, right? oh, like, bye. No, you say what over your shoulder while you're sprinting away. <laughs> Let's see. One of the few people to actually see a person with the psychosis was a missionary named J.E. Sandin, uh, who traveled around in the early 1900s. The woman was supposedly possessed, seemed rational, and had no desire to eat human flesh, only wanted to kill strangers because she feared they would hurt her. No, that that's like just it. regular psychosis. Yeah. That's just a regular psychotic thing. Uh, she surrounded herself with close family and avoided new people in order to avoid the temptation to kill them. Oh. This is one of the most well-documented cases and doesn't resemble Wendigo psychosis at all. Yes, I have no idea why it's included. <laughs> so, I mean, um, upon closer looks, um, there's more problems with the so-called psychosis. Mm-hmm. Anthropologists pointed out that people who were said to be Wendigos generally suffered from all kinds of mental problems. And that the term was a catch-all phrase for any mental issue. Um... Early anthropologists believed that everyone whom the phrase was applied suffered from the same psychosis, and so assumed that it was widespread. When cannibalism figured in a crime, people assumed that it had to be because of the cultural psychosis rather than being an aspect of violent crime. Yeah. That can happen anywhere. It happens for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. A good story and a few dramatic tales that no one was a first-hand witness to, and soon psychosis had been invented. One that conveniently vanished before it could be verified. Mm-hmm. So, Wendigo psychosis is, I guess, well known, but... But not verifiable. Yeah. Okay, well, moral of the story, don't eat people. Yeah, eating people is bad. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, now there's, was it prion disease? Yeah. Where, I mean, you, you can get that from cannibalism, can't yeah, you? brains. Yeah. They scare me. Keep me up at night. Yeah. Or, like, <laughs> isn't, isn't Creutzfeldt Jakob disease like can't you get it from being a cannibal too maybe i don't know about that one i don't know about that one either but prions for sure yeah absolutely for prions but (laughs) (laughs) so that's the one to go okay um spooky horrifying yes if i ever see something that's 15 feet tall and and matted get that man some conditioner and then sprint the fuck away yeah just like throw your bottle of conditioner while you're on your hike yeet Eat the conditioner and then run away. Here you go, sir. Just like yeah. bye. Uh, yeah. I <laughs> and uh, I guess that ends our first episode of the Knowledge Mess, huh? Did we have? I feel like we had an idea for something to end the episode. Oh, well, I was just gonna say our email. Oh, yeah. If you wanna, if anyone is listening, hello. Is anyone out there? Uh, <laughs> if anyone is listening, you can contact us at uh, the Knowledge Nest at Outlook. Oh? Yeah. Right? Yep. Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, I guess that's it. Alrighty. Bye!